Yeah. So maybe I guess here's here's the thing is like if you're NASCAR, what you know you're looking at the team owner saying, "Hey guys, I don't know what your problem is. Stop spending money. If you're t- <laughs> you know if it's costing you more money to race than we provide to you, that's your own fault." Yep. And isn't that the nature of a competitive? I mean, and that's that's the I, I'm oversimplifying it, but like we're in a competitive business. Mm-hmm. This isn't this isn't a a a tech company startup where you're creating a monopoly for yourself. Like it is inherently the business itself. I know it sounds I'm talking about competition in the race cars. Yes, it's competitive, but like it's inherently a competitive business. So in my mind and in my experience in racing, these team owners are going to keep spending every penny they get yep. on race cars. So yep. even if NASCAR gives them $20 million in guaranteed revenue, they're still going to want to spend all $20 million of those dollars and then go find another $10 million in sponsorship so that they can spend $30 million. So before we go further... Welcome to the Money Lap. I'm Parker Klingman, joined as always by Landon Castle. We flipped it up on its head a little bit this week in terms of jumping directly into the biggest news in all of motorsports, and that is a NASCAR charter selling for a record $40 million. What does this mean for NASCAR, for motorsports, and how do you justify these valuations? We're going to jump into all that. We're going to talk to all of the, obviously, the other NASCAR series, including my Xfinity Series playoff battle, some F1 stuff. Uh, but Landon... We're already talking about it, so let's jump into it. As I mentioned, forty million. You were just saying, basically, the the discussion is pretty simple. Record charter sale, right? Yet you have a majority of team owners over the last two years and multiple years who have said that the business model of running a NASCAR cup team is broken mm-hmm. can both be true or at the same time <laughs> at the same time, or does something give right. And that's what we're trying to discuss here. And so to your, what you were allowed, you know, going down the path you were going there before, I think one of the, if you wanted to think of it in like a perfect world, Candyland, one of the thoughts I believe some team owners have had and people in the sport have had, and especially now the next gen car is okay. If you give us 20 million per charter, right? Not taking the charter, but you're, they provide 20 million revenue. Let's just say an arbitrary number that with the next gen car and sort of the way the racing is, you could only spend so much. Now us being racers find that hard to believe mm-hmm. because even formula one, has had to have a budget cap now, right? And started to restrict themselves. Mm-hmm. If they felt like they could restrict without a budget cap system, then they probably would have done that. <laughs> right? Well, and I think that that's something they're trying to figure out because I, I feel like to somehow mitigate this this arms race of spending... You have there. It seem at 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 least at this point, it seems like there has to be some kind of just very hard and fast rule of of a what in the form of a budget cap, or you know, obviously other sports have salary caps and luxury taxes and things like that. So, you know, 
NASCAR and the team owners still are, I guess, are trying to communicate with each other on this, this help us help ourselves, I suppose, when it comes to spending, because the team owners, it's not entirely NASCAR's fault that this quote unquote model is broken, I think, because the team owners are competitive and they will spend every penny they get. But to, yeah. but when it comes to this two, two different things, right, you have the broken model and, and I have, I've in the last two days I've spoken with via text or on the phone with five different NASCAR team owners. And they all pretty much say the same thing. The model's broken and our charters are worth forty million bucks. <laughs> um, but it's not just that the charters are worth forty million bucks. It's it's I, I think the the and by the way that I think that the 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 conversations that I've had aren't actually too in the dark of like our charter's broken, but also we sh- we think they should be worth more than that. I mean, I, there's actually one in particular was like oh, I think they should be worth fifty. Um, there is some realism Which there. That, sure, well, hold on, I sure some are. This was remember the dead last place charter that just sold. So for 40 okay, so this is the point that I'm getting at that I want to make. Yep. Five years ago, the not not even the dead last charter. The BK Racing Charter was sold for what two million bucks. Well, we have the exact numbers. So uh, the BK Racing Charter sold for two million on August twenty third, twenty eighteen. So five years ago, for two million dollars, that charter sold, and a charter of similar value, if anything lesser value. Um. Obviously, this is the one we're talking about. It has just sold for forty million bucks. So in five years, this investment has gone from two million dollar valuation to forty million dollar valuation, under a totally broken model, from yep. what I'm hearing from team owners. And by the way, if you're a team owner listening to this, I know that to be true because I've been in this sport for long enough. I watch team owners spend every penny they have. I know the the money that gets spent on these race cars and where the money has to come from. And at the at the end of the day, only at best, fifty percent of that comes from NASCAR, yep. right? You have to go raise fifty to eighty percent more money than you get from your charter to operate a competitive NASCAR team. Let's, so I believe that to be true, and that's the broken yep. model that everybody's talking about. But in this time period, charters have gone up two thousand percent. We've we well not two thousand percent. It's from one thousand percent. We did the from math. from two million dollars to forty million dollars. That is a uh, 2,000% increase. According to Josh's math here, it's 1,000%. Pull up. I think he needs the math a little bit better. <laughs> that's a 20X. Here's, here's regardless, that's a, regardless, it's a 20X okay. um, increase yes. in your investment in five years. <laughs> so there is there is a incredible blue sky valuation that's going on with these charters. And... There's there's a whole lot of blue sky goodwill, whatever you want to call it, valuation going on in these charters, where um, whoever's buying these charters, whether it is actually Spire or there's somebody else behind it that's helping fund it, or there's a motivation there, whatever it is, um, I suppose that's where you could get on this 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 idea that well two things can be true at the same time the charter values are going up because of blue sky valuation not because of the model um and the model is broken right the team owners have an unsustainable business model because they don't get enough money from nascar i suppose or the structure needs to be different to where there's 
there is a different type of, I don't know, revenue sharing or cost controls or some kind of measures um, in place. So I, I am kind of on this this position of I think two things can be true at the same time, but I think that it's it's... I think that we are in a speculative bubble when it comes there to... There you go. Speculative. Speculative <laughs> bubble when it comes to charter valuations. And that is some very specific feedback I've gotten. Yeah. I've heard. Not just team owners, but I think a lot of people say that. Um, well, here, I'll do the math. Yep. Do the math for me real quick. All right, let me just do two things. Not to cut you off, but I want to go bring up one other thing. We also have the number... So in August 23rd, 2018, the BK Racing Charter at the time sold for $2 bucks, roughly. That same year, in December 5th of 2018, the uh, Furniture Row Racing for the champion of 2017 sold for $6 bucks. Basically a 3X for the highest charter, essentially. Now, that's not the highest charter of the series because the highest of the series would be your seven-time champion charters of the 43, 48, and... Uh, I guess Richard Childress three car, correct? Because they those aren't historical. Are, I don't, don't know if those are automatically the highest charters. I think they just have a. Uh, well, they have a little extra if they were yeah, the a little extra. They have a little more. So just say they could potentially have a little bit more uh, uh -huh. revenue than the others if they were equally equal. So that's basically a three X. So at forty million for the Live Fast charter, uh, that essentially puts Joe Legato for last year his charter roughly, whatever roughly around one hundred and twenty million dollars. If you went off the same math, no way. <laughs> just to put this in context, a top level championship caliber NASCAR Cup Series team right now will spend what twenty five million to thirty million max per season, maybe these days. You know, just ten years ago, but maybe these days, somewhere in that range. So you'd pay one hundred and twenty million. To, to have to, and that 120 in just, just so then I want to do the math on the multiples because you you brought up the speculative side. Let's say the live fast charter pumps out what right now three and a half million bucks a year, probably four and a half, four and a half. Okay, four and a half. So it's a little under 10x multiple on its revenue, right? That's gross revenue. <laughs> uh, that would mean Joe Legato's. What do we think it would make? right now this year probably seven or eight seven or eight so yeah a little bit more <laughs> more than a 10x <laughs> multiple for one of these but with that what everyone's problem is with valuing these compared to other say a normal business a normal business let's just say you have a normal business that makes a million dollars in revenue there's two hundred thousand dollars in profit you get valued based on the profits right on a multiple mm -hmm. It sells for a couple hundred grand. That makes sense. Bam. You know, 2X multiple or 3X multiple, maybe it sells for 600 grand. Bam. Mm -hmm. You know, that's people paying that multiple on the money it makes. Uh, when you value a charter, the live fast one, so say it puts out four and a half million, well, they probably spent what? This year to run seven million, six million bucks, maybe. Mm -hmm. Probably. So we're in there. Yeah. So you have four and a half million of guaranteed revenue but you've got to spend six million to keep that going mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the broken model right that's the broken model that's the that's the broken part of the model 
So if you're a team owner right now that's not trying to sell your charter, these headlines of $40 million are not the headlines you want to see while, well, you're, in the middle of a, while you're in the middle of a negotiation with NASCAR to extend your charter agreement. Yeah. Because I can tell you that behind closed doors, and not even behind closed doors because it's been out in the public, the team owners will say their their model is broken. Right? They have a hard time running their business. They're dependent on corporate sponsorship. They have too, you know, too high a liability when it comes to their cost of running the team and too few partners, too few rev revenue streams for their partners. Um, you know, a team like any pick any team, right, that has a as a two car or three car or four car organization, they might only have ten or eleven corporate partnerships that actually fund a $50 million, $75 million budget, right? So if they lose one of those partners, they just lost 10, 20% of their budget all in one um, one chunk, they have to immediately change their strategy as a team. So if you are a team owner that's not looking to sell your charter right now and you're negotiating with NASCAR, this these headlines are not helping you, I would imagine. If mm -hmm. you're NASCAR... Hell, I'd be leaking these headlines. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would want the world to know uh, that the charter values are going up and up and up. And I don't know what these team owners are crying poor about because uh, they've seen a 2,000% increase in their investment in the last five years. <laughs> right? But, but the investment, yes, but they're not creating any more revenue. Right? And that's the argument from the team side, which is, sure, the... but. It's the just entry, no the access point. Like, I know, but the access point has gone up in value. So yeah, like my real estate is, but my business isn't creating any more revenue. So cool, I could sell my, you know, it's like owning, just say you own the building your restaurant is in, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Your restaurant is struggling to make break even or even, you know, make a profit. But the building has suddenly gone up. Uh, and by the way, you were correct. We were going off the Tommy Baldwin charter, which sold in 2016 for 3.5 million. That's why it was a thousand percent above that on our math. It okay. is two thousand percent on the two million. Just so you know, uh, you know, your building is suddenly worth a thousand percent more, right? Well, yeah, cool. But if you're trying to run that restaurant and not sell the building or leverage against the building to run your restaurant, here's a here's an interesting compare. If you want to compare like real estate like that. Right, because that's the only thing. The way, I the way our model currently operates, and this is why I don't know. I don't know, you know, as long as a race team operates in such a way that they can completely scale up or down their revenue based on sponsorship, right? This this asset that they can sell for as little as five million or as much as fifty million. And who it just depends on who's willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, the value of that asset is going to dramatically fluctuate based on the scenario of that team and sponsor partnership. So it, it's it's like if if LiveFast were were the ones buying a charter, and they didn't have any sponsorship to run, but they got a good you know they got a good little team, and BJ's got an Xfinity team, and he knows he can turn that shop into a cup shop. They have no committed sponsorship to speak of. So he's got to run his business off of the charter money and, you know, and his willingness to say, hey, I think I can go find two or three million bucks worth of sponsorship from in, through the local markets 
So that might be his way of justifying, hey, to me, this charter is worth three, four, five, six million dollars, right? Because mm-hmm. I can run my business in that way. But if you take Dreddy Autosport and Mr. Gainbridge, who are maybe have a completely different network and access to revenue, sponsorship partnerships, where they could be looking at saying, hey, if we got into NASCAR, we could sign a five-year sponsorship agreement for $30 million a year or something like that because of our business. Who knows what Mr. Gainbridge has going on. I'm, I'm just picking someone at random, but, but the, obviously it's a big name that has shown a lot of interest in our sport that might be have some kind of relation to what's going on here with, with these recent charter transactions. If, if this is a someone that's looking at getting into the sport and has a deep uh, network of potential wealth to tap into for sponsorships and could sign long-term tens of million-dollar deals, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to justify saying, okay, I'll spend $40 million bucks for this charter, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's still, I mean, does that... M- both of those things can be true at the same time and the model didn't change. The model is still quote unquote broken. Yep. Right? Yep. So how does that how does that work if you're NASCAR and you're nego- you're navigating all this stuff, right? And I to me I it makes a little bit of sense as to why they could be at a stalemate point in this negotiation where the teams Maybe the teams like Trackhouse and 2311 and Hendrick, you know, all, I don't know. Maybe these teams that have just been in their corner for so long operating their business, going through the risk year in and year out and sponsorship agreements in and out. Um, you know, those are the teams that are sitting here saying, man, if we lose our sponsors, we, we have no way to fund this team at the same way that we're funding it today. So we need NASCAR to step up and give us a higher percentage, a bigger piece of the pie. Um. If you're NASCAR, you're saying no. <laughs> like, like I don't know. Is there an argument? Well, is there an argument to be made that now that the charters have gone so far up in value, is it is it up to NASCAR to potentially provide more uh, revenue to the teams from their their revenue, putting your slice of the pie, whatever you want to call it? Because it has become so expensive to enter. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't. It's a know. weird thing to say because I don't force that. Would happen. I don't think so. That's I why think it's going. the opposite. I think, think from NASCAR. Are you saying from NASCAR's perspective, like does does the value the valuation of these charters sort of put NASCAR in a position where it obligates them? They owe it to the teams to give them a bigger piece of the pie. I wonder if it's yeah. I wonder if it's in the best interest. Gosh, I don't know. Think about, think about this. Think that if you leveraged up to buy that $40 million charter to get in, and you got in, you got this thing, and then you know you have the time. Now your time period and your time horizon to do you know what Spire did with the Furniture Row charter, which is where they you know were able to pay it off, it's, essentially. It's right? 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> now it's going to be 40 years to do that. For numbers. <laughs> now, I think... Some of the speculation we should put out there just before we go much further is the idea behind uh, the new media rights deal possibly being, you know, more income 
to the teams just in a a uh a thought the thought process that that number will go up some percentage from what it was in the last media rights deal mm-hmm. obviously the teams are fighting for a larger share of that pie as well that's mm-hmm. the big discussion they also here's the crazy part don't have a charter agreement done this current one runs out i think in four months or something something crazy or some maybe not four months is it four months so i mean but that's my point about um that this is a ter- that, that that we're in potentially a highly speculative bubble where there is an insane amount of blue sky multiple that's been applied to these recent especially this live fast charter um sale where if the speculation is on this new TV rights deal and new charter agreement with the teams being some earth-shattering deal what what happens to charter prices if that doesn't happen? What happens to charter prices if the new TV deal comes down and it's not what everybody thinks it is? And if the charter agreement is not what everybody thinks it is, um, that the team owners maybe get a bump in their money, but not something they don't get twice as much money as they had previously been getting, um, like I think they were hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens there? Does the bubble pop? Are there a bunch of investors behind some of these charter purchases that are left extremely disappointed and um are looking to get out of the sport after a couple years like what what happens well as we've seen in other bubbles uh the last couple years we had the meme stock bubble we've had the cryptocurrency bubbles uh normally those left holding the bag are not as happy so (laughs) not to take by the way we should put out the this entirety of this money lap uh, podcast this week is not financial advice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we haven't said that in a while, but it's not financial advice. I do want to, just speaking of bubbles, not that all these are bubbles, but uh, it was fun to make some comparisons in terms of the growth in charter prices over the last couple of years. So the first one to sell was back in uh, November 2016, the Tommy Baldwin charter that sold for $3.5 million. Um, since that time, you know, from that number, it's a thousand percent gain to live fast, but it's a two thousand percent gain since the 2018 sale of the BK Racing two million dollar charter. Um, Tesla in that time has gone up two thousand percent, so pretty much in line with the NASCAR charter. You could own Tesla stock, Apple stock up about five hundred fifty percent since that time, uh, and Bitcoin since November seventeenth, twenty sixteen, ninety six thousand percent. As of today, uh, you would have done well on that one compared to a NASCAR charter. So Bitcoin if you would have been smart, twenty. If you would have been smart and diversified your investments, and put a little bit into Bitcoin, a little bit into Tesla, um, a little bit into Apple, maybe the S and P five hundred. I'm sure that went up too. Yeah, and you know, and then allocated some of your resources into uh, NASCAR charter. You would have done pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> to a NASCAR charter. <laughs> Some people tried. Some people I, did try. I, I just, they, it's just not, there's something, it, it is, I really, it's, to me, it is these charter valuations. There is some serious FOMO going on, you know, fear of missing out um, among mm-hmm. motorsports people. I think Spire somehow has done a really good job of creating some of that FOMO. Um, and the, you have this, this pending 
new TV rights deal, new charter agreement has as is probably one of the core driving, you know, uh, messaging of this FOMO. And it has caused a incredibly speculative increase in charter valuations with literally no change in the business model. I, I'm with the team owners that the business model is difficult. Uh, I, you know, broken is tough. Like I don't, you could maybe say broken, but man, I just, I would love to go in deeper with a team owner over it and NASCAR over it because it's, this is a really, this isn't a, uh, a franchise sticking ball sport. You know, we're, we're different. We're structured different than that where, you know, the franchisees of the teams don't own the league and, um, you know, NASCAR is its own independent organization. The team owners are their own independent organization. So, you know, we all work together. But at the end of the day, it's really NASCAR giving the team owners a platform to race. Um, so there's kind of a weird dynamic there. I, I don't, you know, so for the team owners sort of having this entitlement that it's just like, hey, you got to give us more money. I, I understand why. Um, and the team owners are the ones that put on the show. But then NASCAR's are the, NASCAR's the ones that put the show on. And, and they own the tracks and, you know, NASCAR could open the whole thing back up and say, Hey, it's a Daytona 500. Whoever can bring a car and race gets to qualify in and race. And, you know, in a weird way, it's like, here's the other thing that doesn't get talked about very much is, you know, the team owners will, could threaten to not race. Right. And I think that that's, I don't know if that got thrown around or they got the exhibition races got thrown around, but most of their agreements with their drivers, these team owners, they have an obligation to their drivers to field a car in specific races. And 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 I'm basing this off of agreements that I've seen and agreements that I've signed. That if I got to February with previous cup teams that I've been contracted with or even Xfinity teams... And I got, I showed up at Daytona helmet in hand and the car that I was contracted to drive was not there. The team would be in breach of that contract for not bringing car to the track. So, you know, in a weird way, it's like NASCAR could, could call Chase Elliott and say, Hey, if the teams are going on strike, we'll still have a car for you in the Daytona 500. (laughs) Right, like, and Chase Elliott could still race in the daytime. I don't, I don't. Maybe I'm completely talking out of my butt here on this, but I just think that it's it's just an interesting dynamic the way our sport is structured. That if I had to really drill down to who is the final boss here of this sport, and who really is the one that's in control of the final call, I think it's NASCAR. Yep. I think that NASCAR I can I think in NASCAR they can have good faith negotiations with the team owners. I think that the team owners can b- provide a lot of compelling arguments. I think there's a lot of reasons why NASCAR should find unique and new and innovative ways to compensate the team owners. But I think that if it comes down to a stalemate and and the Daytona 500 is a month away and the team owners are digging their heels in i think that nascar could still put on the daytona 500 mm-hmm. i just that 
that made me shudder for a second. We did. <laughs> and I'm sorry to go so deep and dark. There's a lot of strikes I mean, going on in the in the United States right now. So, you know, yeah. right well, I was like, I'm sorry to go that far with it. And maybe it just sounds crazy to go that far. But it's like, t- in my mind, I want to go that far with this thought experiment to figure out who really has the leverage. Yep. Right? Who really yep. has the leverage? And I think it's it's the one, it's, it's the guy that owns uh, Daytona International Speedway and... Um, and puts on the race. Mm-hmm. You know, the only other the only other catch to that is is the where the team owners do have some leverage. I think is is with their TV, you know, their media rights agreements. Um, I think that those network partners probably want to know that they're going to have teams show up. That you know, Chase Elliott is going to be there driving a car. Um, that those big name Kyle Busch is going to be there driving a car. Um, I do think that the team owners probably have some ability and some leverage to to muddy that up or or make that difficult but i don't know i i think that for decades and decades and decades nascar has done tv deals um where the team owners i don't think were entirely involved in the tv deals <laughs> uh, we are in a new we are in a new era um but man i just feel like at the end of the day nascar is the one with the leverage yep well it's a Interesting discussion uh, to put a little bit more context to this. The F1 buy-in at this time that we've talked about with Andretti Global trying to get joined F1 uh, was $200 million for two cars, which if you wanted to call those charters, would be $100 million a charter. So via the math of the live fast one that we have now and the first <laughs> racing one, Joe Logano's charter being roughly worth around $120 million would mean that a two-car NASCAR Cup team with high-end charters would be more than to enter Formula One. Remember, Formula One has get gotten to where the teams basically make 50% of the revenue of the sport, uh, and they split it fairly uh, equitably. So, you know, there has been a massive rise in the re- revenue. It's all publicly traded. You can see a lot of this. There's been a massive rise in the revenue. That's, thus, that $200 million buy-in has been lobbied by the teams to be raised to $600 million. So Okay, so we've spent 30 minutes on this. We haven't even done the yep. PR lap. What is the, do you know the revenue per team per car in F1? Uh, I don't, but we can find it out pretty quickly. I don't know off the top of my head. But it's uh, it's by team points, and you have Ferrari who have a pretty, uh, a nice little bump for historical. But let's see if we can put producer Josh on it. We'll come back to it. He'll get us the numbers So while we're talking through this. Let's do the PR lap. Let's come back to this. Let's do the PR lap. Uh, just quickly out there, we're over 113 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Pretty awesome. We had one that said, once again, wonderful. One of the best brunch spots on the East Coast had an exqui- exquisite French toast dish with fresh strawberries and Cool Whip. And the side dishes are the quality of main courses at most restaurants. <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. You know, uh, thanks, I really appreciate that review because we have been doing that for a while, uh, similar to a Cheesecake Factory. The kids' desserts is just uh, strawberry and uh, whipped cream. It's a simple dessert. Um, you know, it's not too much. So we love doing that here at the Money Lab. Um, okay, so we've got it here. Back in 18, average team revenue uh, around $220 million today. Only three teams are expected to generate. So what are you saying? Team $200 million per team? Parker, you think that's low? Yeah, I think that's actually low. Um, but, I mean, that's is that including sponsorship? No, that's just from the sport. 
it's just from the sport. So you're telling me that in by so, team you mean per car or per organization? Yeah. So hold on, let me just break this down for you. So in 2022, uh, Formula One brought in a total of 2.57 billion in revenue, driven by record attendance and expanding global viewership. Um, so that could be correct that their portion is roughly that. So you're telling me that a Formula One team, mm-hmm. the Formula One teams, their charters, unquote unquote, are selling for a single year's annual gross revenue. Yes. And a NASCAR team just sold for 10x <laughs> uh, gross revenue. Yep. It doesn't, okay. doesn't work. It's a bubble. <laughs> and that established it. It's a bubble. See <laughs> Steve Carell. Yep. Yep. Well, more power to those who uh, bought in early. Good luck. Um, in the truck series, which does not have charters, uh, I raced this weekend at Bristol, finished 18th. Wasn't a very fun time. Uh, Corey Heim advanced to championship four, beating out Christian Eckes, who won both stages. Uh, it was a race stuck on the bottom. It was cold. We couldn't <clears throat> out at all. Um, so interesting battle continues there. Uh, some other interesting things that happened in terms of Ty Majeski being able to stay, uh, I guess, in contention with a flat tire of riding around the last two laps and getting the lucky dog uh, at the end of the stage, which was interesting. And now, uh, some news during the week. Matt De Benedetto, Benedetto, De Benedetto, Matt De Benedetto, is <laughs> it? Uh, I was out. Is out of the Rafley War ride for the final three races of the Truck Series season, which he had announced he was not returning that ride. And now it looks like they've split before the end of the season. So Interesting. Yeah. So something must be going on there. Um, are you, uh, if you're a fan of Matty D, you've seen him go through this. You've had to jump in and out of rides with him, collect the t-shirt, move on to the next one. Um, you might be afraid that this is your last chance to snag a die cast of his, of the Rackley War truck. Maybe they'll go on sale, if, even if he has a die cast. I don't know. Um... If you're wanting to find out, look no further. You know what's about to come. <laughs> SpoilerDieCast.com. One of the largest inventories of in-stock products in the industry. Hopefully they have Matty D stuff. You're sure to find what you're looking for. If it's Matty D, I hope so. If you spend $20 or more, you'll get free shipping. And that's not all. Because if you spend $50 or more, you'll also receive a free signed Landon Castle Voyager 164 scale diecast. That's what happens when rides change as they end up going on sale or they get given away in free giveaways like this. So spend 50 bucks, you'll get a die cast of mine. It's the perfect addition to your collection. Uh, don't forget, Spoiler Diecast also has a pre-order system in place for the diecast, $0 down option. Do not wait, Parker. Visit to SpoilerDieCast.com today. Use promo code MONEYLAB for free shipping and 5% off all orders. Um, it you know we used to say that that was the most aggressive offer in the space, but I think this whole uh, free diecast for fifty dollars or more signed by me, uh, it's got to be the most aggressive. So hopefully people get in there and get that done. I signed a whole boatload of them, maybe not a whole boatload, a handful, a handful. Right. Of them. It's a good, it really a nice of you, really nice of you. Yeah, uh, love that. Check out spoilerdiecast.com. Um, I thought let's move to the Xfinity series. I'm in the playoffs right now. Started the playoffs at Bristol, came in as the lowest seed. 
uh, got into practice, went about five to eight laps, Landon, and I thought to myself, spoiler diecast is going to have to make a diecast because I'm going to win this race. <laughs> we were really good. We did 20 laps off the truck, parked it, and said, that's it. Don't need to do any further. I'm happy with this thing. Got to qualifying. Got a little tight off four, but still had a solid qualifying. Got in the race, stage one. Drove all the way up to seventh, was passing for fifth and sixth in the last lap of the stage, was flying. I felt like I was two or three tenths faster than anyone in the last ten laps. And then things went sour. We pitted, <laughs> came out around tenth, uh, and then suddenly got very tight and then tighter and then way tighter and then the right front hub failed. Mm. Landon, <laughs> this is very similar to you. We have had too many similarities between our seasons, uh, between yeah. the broken transmission at Coda, which I think yep. you had one at Coda, right? Yes, at Coda. Yes. Broke, broken yep. transmission at Coda. I had the same thing. Uh, this happened to Bristol. The hub was exactly what happened to me. Unfortunately for me, it's what knocked me out of the playoffs. Um, I don't know. I feel like we've had a few other things. We've had a couple other. Well, the fuel uh, at Charlotte. The fuel issue at Charlotte. Oh yeah, my gosh. Literally, so it's actually the following the track too. It's following the track and the same problem. So you had the gearbox issue at Coda last year. Fuel issue, gearbox Charlotte. issue at Coda. Fuel so fuel pump at, at Charlotte. Same thing as yours, basically. Fuel cable, fuel pump. The this weekend we broke the right front hub. Patrick Donahue, my crew chief, this morning we were doing a sim, and he was like, "By the way." It was exactly the same break and the way that Landon's broke last year. <laughs> Unbelievable. Un- what is happening here? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's like it sounds crazy and it sounds like co- insanely coincidental, but it's really not because we were driving the same equipment, right? Like yep. the cars yep. that I drove last year are the same cars that you're driving this year. And that's. Yep. They're all the same components, same transmissions. When we're talking about the transmission stuff, same fuel systems, same suspension. So there is obviously a lifespan on all of those components. <laughs> and here's another way to look at this too. This is this is an interesting way to drill down into it. You know, Coda, the transmission failure at Coda. Um, obviously, it's a road course. Road courses in general are harder on transmissions. Um, Coda itself also has a lot, um, several first gear corners, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, I felt like my transmission broke through my really high RPM shifting from a first gear to second gear, third gear. Um, you know, you like really aggressive acceleration rate through through the gears. Um, similar issue that you had. Charlotte, I don't know how to explain the fuel cable issue at Charlotte and the commonalities there, but I will say for Bristol and the right front, you know, hub issue, Bristol is just a track that you don't see that kind of load anywhere else on the circuit on the right front. Yep. So it's, if you're going, if you have a right front hub that has a little bit of age on it or has a blemish in the, in the manufacturing, you know, maybe this, the, the hubs that we use at RCR, um, have a manufacturing flaw in them or something, a defect. If you have any kind of defect in it or if it's got age in it, Bristol is the place that you're going to see it. Like, it's just mm-hmm. is because of the load there. Dover's the only other place that you might see that. Yeah. Um, there's other tracks with high loads, but just Bristol has just such a violent impact on the right front. Every, you know, 
seven or eight seconds because you're making 16 second laps and you go into the corner. So, you know, the right front has no time to recover. The, it just, it's, you're, you're killing it. So, um, it actually as crazy as it sounds. It's all the same stuff and we had the same problems. So hopefully they fix <laughs> so, them. Um, yeah. I, you've already raced in New Hampshire and you didn't get DQ'd. Uh, no, so but I did, I did wreck. So <laughs> you did wreck. Um, so if I'm looking into the crystal ball, you need to get through Texas without wrecking. You need to get through Martinsville without wrecking, but you're going to do great in Phoenix. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to be, so if we can just make it to the championship four, well, there will be a top five effort in Phoenix. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Perfect. That'd be wonderful. Um, looking ahead for our race team, we are now 22 points below the cut line. Um, bit of a disappointing finish with that, but my team was able to get us back out to recover five positions, which is five points, which could be huge here. So as we head into Texas, a place they won out with Tyre Reddick uh, last year, uh, pretty excited about that considering they have a bit of a, you know, they know what to do around here. They have uh, they feel very confident in it. Um, and I do like Texas. I think it's a pretty interesting track, one that requires some serious uh, cojones in three and four. You got to <laughs> literally mentally prepare yourself to go into three and four and be comfortable being very uncomfortable every single lap <laughs> um so excited for that but yeah we i think for us really going to texas we just have to keep doing what we're doing we've been basically a top seven car in speed every week if we do that score a bunch of points if others have issues is this the right car back. you had at kansas this is not no okay so but that car is going to homestead that car is going to phoenix i believe okay so we're we're planning to yeah we make it to the championship four we'll have our best bullet sitting there so, yeah, pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, but we've been we've been top seven speed with these cars too. So I think we we don't have any qualms, any issues in that sense. Um, but yeah, we'll see. So we're gonna do the same thing, and then we got the roll. Already been doing sim for that. Looking forward to it. So we'll see if we can uh, find ourselves make it in the second round. And if we do that, I feel very confident that we can find a win in the championship four. So. One thing I did do this weekend before both races landed was get up. I had coffee. And more specifically, I had Four Sigmatic Think Coffee because it is the coffee that energizes your brain. I think I just made that up, but it's really true because it's really great for your ability, cognitive function. Uh, it's infused with mushrooms that help your cognitive function, and I just fully believe in it. So it's the best. I use the instant coffee before races, and I think it's awesome to get me locked in in the zone. And I will need it to uh, propel us at Texas and at the road will hopefully make it in the second round of the playoffs. If you want to try this coffee, think that's Think Coffee by Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com. Use the code MONEYLAP for 15% off. I just sold someone the other day on it uh, in person. So, and they loved it. Try it out. I'm actually, I am almost out of uh, Think Coffee. Well, we know it's person. I know. I'm gonna have to get some more. I just, I just noticed today. I think I got about two more days left of it. <laughs> well, we'll find it. We'll get you more. Let's jump into the Cup Series. Uh, in terms of on track stuff, we talked about all this, the business behind the scenes that's happening. Um, the Bristol race was an interesting race. Once again, maybe not quite what we hope to see out of Bristol in terms of these cars being able to get up to each other and that sort of thing, especially on the bottom. But uh, Denny Hamlin was able to come out on top. Uh, leading late there, you had both the 
uh, Roush, Fenway, Keselowski cars make it into the next round of the playoffs. Kevin Harvick and Joe Logano, the defending champion Joe Logano, was eliminated, making almost all of our brackets at Money Lap wrong. Nice in the middle. <laughs> but I think that's where I want to start, in that it's a real almost changing of the hierarchy in the Ford teams this year. When mm. you look at when RFK, we asked the question, when they won a couple in a row, when they won at Richmond with Chris Buescher, we were like, all right, really? What'd they find? Will this last? No, no, no. They've been fast everywhere. And yeah. they now just pushed out Joe Legato and Kevin Harvick in the playoffs. Uh, that's a big move. Yeah, I mean, we've been hard on Stuart Haas lately. Well, I don't, I don't, we haven't been too much. Maybe it's been offline. We've been hard on Stuart Haas. <laughs> uh, gosh, it just seems like Stuart Haas has kind of lost its way. And um, I don't know. Makes you wonder what's going on there. And and even down to their driver selections, right? We don't, you know, we've got Almirola and Priest and Josh Berry, and then like what's you know Briscoe. Um, it's just an interesting. It's an interesting lineup for a team that is supposed to be a key partner team. Their performance with Kevin Harvick obviously hasn't been to their light. It's not. I mean, something. Horrible, horrible, but it's just been not to their liking. Um, it seems like they haven't been as unified as a camp on this with this next gen car. Um, makes you wonder what what they're what they're go you know where they're headed. So is Gene Haas has got his Formula One team that he's obviously heavily invested in. Tony Stewart's been drag racing a lot. Um. I don't know. I I just I wonder what the future of that organization is right now, especially when charters are going for forty million a piece. Yeah, it's interesting. And when you look at the Ford hierarchy, you know I know one of the things that Brad Keselowski has been vocal about has been getting RFK up that totem pole to be more closely aligned. You know, to be in a position to be sort of the go-to for the manufacturer because it just opens up even intangibles. You know, whether they say everyone gets the same things or same information, whatever it is, there are intangibles when you become sort of the one of the go-to sort of premier teams for a manufacturer. Absolutely. Uh, and I would not say going into this season, RFK was even potentially in that discussion compared to a Stuart Haas, right? Yep. Uh, so just not. Tell me, uh, tell me about this. Interesting caution with Martin Shrex Jr. <laughs> he almost failed to advance, obviously, coming in as the uh, regular season champ, and that would have been sort of a disaster. But had sort of a, like, one of those in sim racing where you get sideways and you lock up, you push the brake and the throttle at the same time and lock up the tires with a big puff of smoke. He did that, and the caution came out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't fully know exactly, you know, I mean, that place happens, stuff happens so quick. And so I know, you know, I'm not ever, I'm not going to fault NASCAR for being quick to throw a caution that sense around that place because stuff happens so crazily. But yeah, he had, I guess, just got a lap down and like all this happens and it was like, whoa, what just happened there? Um, but it ended up helping him. So kind of a weird deal, but I, I'm sure there's conspiracy theories out there, but I'm not going to dive into any of those. I would say... That is just a weird, I like a weird luck. Thing. Mm-hmm. Now that we get to, I want to talk about that package at Bristol for just a second, and not the package itself, because I know we all 
great packages. Like we talk about the package. The reason it sucks to talk about the package is because we can't do anything about the package. Well, actually, in reality, we can't do anything about any of this stuff. We're just talking about it. So, <laughs> but I do want to point. Is that wait, wait, hold on. Is that literally what a podcast is? Yeah, that's we literally what a podcast can't. is. We're just talking. Solve doesn't the- even matter. We we don't solve <laughs> anything. We don't do anything. We just talk. It means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, guys, we're, sitting here, we're sitting here casting our judgment on these team owners and their business models and meanwhile they're fighting for their lives <laughs> to be able to pay their bills so I do want to point something out though is, which is um, you know I, I ran the cup race at Bristol last year and and this isn't just beholden to Bristol but for some reason to me Bristol is an interesting is a really good example of what I'm about to say arrow or no arrow the cars when when the cars all go the same speed and then they have a minimal to just very straight line linear fall off on the tires it's not like a really you know a fluctuating tire degradation lap time fall off because you can heat the tires up and cool them down and heat them up and they the speed cap- the pa- capability of the tire fluctuates when it's just a very linear and minimal fall off on the tire and then everybody in the field is the same speed which they are i mean i ran 25th last year i I can't remember where i ran at bristol last year in the 77 car and i was like a tenth off of the leader all for 500 laps (laughs) i was a tenth (laughs) off of the leader but yet i'm running 30th you can't pass right when you have when everybody's the same speed and then there's no tire fall off you just how are you going to pass, right? Yeah. Find the optimal line as the driver, which when they spray everything, it's it's on the bottom, and then you end up moving up to the top. Like, it's a really fast track. It's narrow. It's dangerous. You just, you can't pass. And so, to me, it's like, it doesn't even have to be an aero issue at that point. It's just the cars go the same speed, and the tires are not super dynamic, right? Yeah. They're just static. They just, they're... You run a 1550 on new tires and you slow down to a 1580 on 80-lap tires and it's a pretty linear fall-off and not much changes and everybody has the same fall-off. Like, it doesn't... It's just... It's the same. And so the field just, you know, runs in this sort of train for 500 laps till the race is over. Um, And I just want to point that out. <laughs> in trucks, it was the same thing. You couldn't pass. We we have a lot more aero. We were in the throttle so much. I mean, I, it felt like we were going a thousand miles an hour. We were going three tenths a lap faster, I believe, in the trucks. Uh, almost, you know, the pole was like a fifteen o. It was like almost in the fourteens. So, absolutely fine around there in the throttle. You could not pass. The Xfinity car was the opposite. It was hotter. We were sliding around a little bit more. The tires fell off, right. of course, because the Xfinity car is the greatest thing ever. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> the greatest thing it, ever. It's just it's a perfect stock credit. And um, it, you know, you could pass a little bit more because people were really struggling with the handling of their cars at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's such a tough thing because it's evident that the the field is so tight that you go to a place like that, you spray the bottom, that the and as you put it, the linear fall off, there's not a penalty for treating the car a certain way and that sort of thing. And it's just, come down to track position. Everyone's so close and all the drivers are so damn good and the teams are so damn good in cup. You yep. know, it, it's it's just a really tough place to be. So, um, Danny Hamlin did say 
he beat all everyone's favorite driver, which he did. <laughs> he beat everyone that night. I thought that was a wonderful quote. He beat everybody. Uh, shout out to Carson Rosevar who ran to top five, and yeah, just missed out on the top ten. Uh, wow. I actually did this. I put this on Reddit on a uh, post on there saying like they didn't see this coming, and I'll be like, look, I was I was very honest. I was like, I raced against the guy in trucks <laughs> and a little bit in Xfinity, and I had would never have put any money on this sort of level of ability <laughs> yeah, in the series anything. and results um, and level-headedness and decision, great decision-making and all that he's doing, it's very impressive. So cool more stuff. power to him. Whatever he figured out, keep it up. Um, moving on from the Cup Series, we're going to rip through some of the biggest stuff around the motorsports world. Uh, the NASCAR Mexico Series is joining the Cup Series for the Clash at the LA Coliseum. I have not been to the Clash, but you have, Len, and you raced in it. Mm-hmm. Kind of cool. It's the first time another series will join them at the Coliseum, but cool that the uh, NASCAR Mexico Series finds itself up on a big stage like that. It is awesome and exciting, and uh, I think they're going to put on a hell of a show. Uh, if you've watched any of those international series that NASCAR has, it is a diamond in the rough in terms of racing quality. So um, it will be really cool. Um, that includes a Penny Series up in Canada, um, the Euro Series out there. I guess I'm, I'm screwing it up because I don't even know their official names for the NASCAR Euros. Euro Series, I suppose they call it, uh, Mexico Series. The racing is incredible. They're just really pure drivers and um, aggression, and the cars are are a little bit different, but they're still, they're kind of like a late model, but they're just, they're still stock cars. So it's kind of cool for them to have this opportunity to race on that kind of stage uh, in the U.S. And with the cup cars, um, the track is a bull ring and I don't know. I, I'm, I'll be excited to watch it. Hopefully, I don't, I wonder if it's broadcasted or um, how we'll be able to watch that race. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, I like I the get college. ride for that race. Oh, that would be so cool. Why don't you do do that? Oh my gosh! Go racing it. I'm gonna send a message right now. Does our friend I mean live on the podcast? Yes. Are you are you texting the Pink Panther? Yes. Ah, this is the one who will not be named. He may be able to make it happen. So, while you do that, I'll move on to our next topic. Uh, keep us updated on your ride here live on the Money Lab. <laughs> In Formula One, it was. The best weekend of Formula One in probably a year and a half <laughs> for a very big reason. Red Bull did not win practice, did not win qualifying, and they missed didn't win the damn race. <laughs> they missed it, and they were awful. And with that came a the Formula One we knew existed if you'd looked back in second through fifth place, and that was Ferrari versus... McLaren versus Mercedes, and it was an awesome battle. Uh, Carlos Sainz, although basically led flag to flag, was not. It was not that easy. Would never told the whole story. He had to hold off a Mercedes contingent of George Russell and Lewis Hamilton, and then there was a late safety car. Those the Mercedes decide to pit. Carlos Sainz, Lando Norris, and Charles Leclerc stay out. Carlos Sainz goes on to drive a a most likely just master class of how to use the right amount of energy, the right amount of your of your race car 
and position Lando Norris to be within DRS, uh, I guess, distance of him mm-hmm. to not allow the fast-charging Mercedes that were on new tires get around Lando Norris. And, I, I mean, one of the most impressive drives of all time. I did want to point out that Ferrari used Charles Leclerc like a sacrificial lamb <laughs> because they did not pit him when the Ferrari when the Mercedes pitted when they could have and maybe put him in a position to, you know, try and actually go for the win, but they they used him as a blocker and as traffic for the Mercedes cars. And I thought that was really smart by them. For all the strategy woes that Ferrari has shown <laughs> over the last two years, that was a perfect call. Really smart. Um yeah. George Russell hit the wall on the last lap behind Lando Norris, but I would say this was one of the best F1 races of the season. Bar none. It, it almost seems like if there would were no Red Bull for the last 12 weeks that we could have more stories like this. <laughs> but the, the Red Bull just sort of, uh, you know, particularly Max Verstappen, um, just sucks the life out of the races with him winning, even though it's been enjoyable to watch him dominate. I, I'm a type of sports fan that roots for greatness. So, you know, I love seeing Jimmy Johnson win seven titles. I wanted to see him win eight. I love seeing Tom Brady win seven rings. I wanted to see him win eight. I love seeing Tiger Woods. I want, you know what I mean? Like, I, I root for greatness. So, for me to think Max Verstappen having almost a near-perfect record this season, record number of consecutive wins, I root. I actually root for that. Um, but let this weekend be a reminder that damn race cars are just fickle. And, <laughs> and they... Um, you just never know when you'll have a reality check. Who knows what was going on in the Red Bull this weekend? I mean, now it makes me want to tune in and see if it continues. If they if they blew it, if they missed something, or if they can get back to where they were, or if they were just tinkering. I mean, who knows? Um, who well, knows what's really going on? The other thing that we could oh, well, you can comment on that because then I don't want to get into. Um, uh, science's uh, strategy there. Yeah, so let me let me dive in on the Red Bulls real quick. Christian Horner was interviewed before the race, uh, and it was pretty candid in saying this is the same car, engine, drivers that just dominated the last 12 weeks forever, and for some reason it's 11th on the grid. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's like, I don't know what's going on either. None of us know what's going on. Let's talk about some of the external factors just real quick that can occur, you know, in a place like that. Singapore is is historically incredibly hot. It's incredibly humid. It is a street circuit full of differing surfaces. Um, you know, if there's a place that you could potentially have some weakness exposed in the Red Bull that has not been seen anywhere else, it could be there because of all the external situation, you know, factors out there that it might have been exposed that they wouldn't have run into anywhere else. Um, and I think that's one key thing to point out in that that track design all just almost every part of it including the temperatures and the weather uh you know just could have maybe you know shown something that just wasn't going to wasn't going to rear its head anywhere else um and i know they had trouble you know max verstappen had trouble upshifting which to me is odd and could be electrical and i know you know when you race in city streets this was uh, a thing many years ago in F1 where, you know, you can get some interference in electronics, et cetera. So I'm not going to say that's it. That's very conspiracy theorist. But I'm just saying there's a lot that happens there. So if you're going to pick a place that they could have had, you know, an issue show up that's not going to happen anywhere else, it could definitely be there. Um, with that, it was just 
it was beautiful for them to be like, let's check in with Max Verstappen. And there he was fighting, just dog fighting for eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I love this. <laughs> oh, man. So what do you want to say about sides? Well, okay. So he had some interesting strategy as a leader that he was, he had this kind of defensive move where he was trying to keep um, uh, Lando in the McLaren within DRS yep. to allow Lando to be able to, you know, still pull away from Russell behind him in the, in the Mercedes. Um, is that, did I, do I have that right? Is that what he was yes. doing? No. So what it was is that he was, he was backing up to keep Lando Norris within DRS range so that the Mercedes couldn't pass Lando. Right. So if because then if he's in if Lando's in DRS and George Russell's in DRS, then it's sort of a moot point to be in DRS because you're both right with drag reduction system. And if I say DRS one more time, I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot. So um you you he was basically purposely not driving away in those areas and keeping Lando Norris under a second back. I think so that, like that a draft, way. right? It's not an yeah. actual aero draft, but it's like you know, he was keeping Lando in his draft so that so that Lando could protect against, you know, a slingshot behind him. Uh, Correct. So what's really interesting to me is I wanted to ask you, have you ex- ever experienced something like a tactic like that in your racing career? I have two that I that I wanted to bring up. One from mm. probably 25 years ago and the other one from fairly recently. But I'm curious of what you, any experience you have. That pop immediately in my head, I would say back when I was in an open wheel, there might have been some uh, a race that we had. Drafting was a real serious thing, and so you didn't want to be the leader off the final quarter. So I've been in a race like that. Yeah. And then I would think the tandem era, sometimes some of the weird things you would do in the tandem era to slow up to get people to attach your rear bumper um, mm-hmm. was would stick out to me as like being something you would do in that sense. Mm-hmm. Other than that, in stock car racing, you know, obviously saving tires, but no, I wouldn't put that in the same category. What, what are yours? I'm curious. So one of them I think is really relevant to today, um, and there's not a whole lot of opportunities for it, but it does happen because I've done it several times, um, at a super speedway. And that to me, this works in Xfinity or Cup, but it really just, it's situational. At a super speedway, if you are in a long green flag run, particularly like at a Talladega, not necessarily Daytona, but at Talladega mostly, um, and you're in a single file line, it usually happens after a round of green flag pit stops, and you're trying to drop, like let's say you want to drop the last car from your group. Like let's say it's a guy you don't want to be in your group or someone that you're trying to, to shake them from the group. If you're the second to last guy, um, and you would like to drop the last guy from your group, you can back up to him and give yourself some space to the car in front of you. And then if he's a little bit weak, like uh, if it's a really strong car, they'll they'll just be able to keep up with you. But if he's a little bit weak, that you create that space in front of you and then you'll suck up to that space in front of you and you'll drop the guy behind you. Because <laughs> you'll, yep. you'll, you'll get the suck up and you'll use that to pull away from the guy behind you, and he'll actually can lose the draft. Um, not a whole lot of it's actually 
more of a super edge case type thing tactic that you would use um, if you're a lap down at a super speedway and you're trying to drop the guy behind you because he's also a lap down. You don't want to race him mm-hmm. for the lucky dog in the pack, like when the pack catches you or something. I mean, this is the kind of shit you do when you've been lapped at a super speedway, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. Both the second one. <laughs> the second one is actually an interesting one. Um, it was one of the first lessons I ever learned as a race car driver. I think I was probably eight or nine years old. Um, so I said 25 years ago. So that, yeah, it'd be close to 25 years ago. Um, the driver, I learned this from, and I was not, I was on the receiving end of this, not on the, I wasn't the beneficiary of it. The driver, his name was Jonathan Cornell. Um, I think he still races sprint cars. He's from Missouri. Um, I think he's still a sprint car, maybe an open wheel driver on dirt. He was my best friend at the time. We were racing at the Newton Kart Club in Newton, Iowa, which you may have never even heard of, but I grew up racing in Newton long before the Iowa Speedway. Ever I existed. definitely haven't, but no, I, I like it. Go so on. I grew up racing at the Newton Kart Club. It's a dirt track about 10 minutes from where the Iowa Speedway is. This was long before Iowa Speedway ever existed. Um, and him and I were in a junior one class, meaning we were, you know, eight, nine years old, racing go-karts against each other. And we, it was on a very small oval track, and I'm trying to describe this in a way that you can visualize we were passing each other on every turn. So on an oval track, I would pass him. Um, let, let me think how this was going. He would pass me going into turn one. And because of the angle and my outside, you know, we're nine years old. So it was I wasn't thinking of it that technical at the time until this. I learned this lesson. He would pass me into turn one. And then I would cross him over and pass him into turn three. And he would cross me over, and we literally, for a, like a 12-rap race, we did this for the majority of the race. <laughs> and with with um, two laps to go, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to get this right. With a certain amount of laps to go, instead of um, him completing the pass on me, he swapped ends on where we were trait where we were passing each other so that he could pass me off a of turn four and take the checkered flag <laughs> because the way we were passing each other i was leading every lap yep this is a i'm this is a real this really actually happened this is i know it sounds crazy you could ask my dad because he was the one that basically pointed this out to me i was not i was nine years old i didn't even realize what happened jonathan is actually a <laughs> older than me so he realized, Jonathan realized in the middle of the race that we were swapping for the lead every single corner, every lap, and that I was leading every lap, that I was crossing the start-finish line as a leader, and then he was passing me off of turn two, right? So mm-hmm. Jonathan determined that he wanted to win the race. Obviously, we both thought we were going to win the race, but he actually used a strategy to say, okay, I'm going to swap sides with Landon, and and I'm going to make it to where I lead every lap, and he did it with like two laps to go, and he won the race. So wow, that was smart. Um, that was a tactic, a uh, uh, masterful gambit, I think is what you could call it, uh, because he gave up passing me for one corner to get us off sequence, and little took the win. Well, good, good for Jonathan. And little did he know that twenty five years later, Carlos Sainz' Singapore GP win would be compared to this Newton Kart Club. You know, I, that, I have applied that. I have applied that to my career, though. Like, 
there's been times, you know, that that is a very simple racing strategy that I've applied so many other times in my career where you get into a one lane corner with somebody and instead of clearing them down into the corner where they mm-hmm. can slip in behind you and cross you back over, um, I've remembered those moves and been like, okay, I'm going to stick this guy on the outside of me. Instead of getting greedy and just trying to clear him, I'm going to stick this guy on the outside of me because... If he gets stuck on the outside of me, he's not going to have momentum. It's a one-lane track, whatever, um, and I'm just going to keep him out there. Martinsville is a perfect yeah. example. You got a guy that you don't want to race with. He races you hard. Um, you know, you get get underneath him, stick him on the outside of you, and then wait for the guy behind you to fill that gap, and he's going back two rows. Yeah. So, a um, lot of really racing is a extremely tactical sport. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, and that doesn't matter if you're a go kart racer at nine years old or you're in Formula One. Um, this is the one part. Amen, amen. It definitely is. Um, if that's all you have for Formula One, I will end it by saying, if there's more races like that, they'll keep more interest. Um, just some news out of MotoGP. They are supposed to be racing in the India GP. Uh, this coming weekend, but it's had all sorts of visa issues and may have to curtail practice uh, to get everyone in there. So it's been a bit of an interesting time. Um, this was a similar thing that happened in the Formula One paddock back in 2011 20, through 2013. So they have had a history of this where mm. racing series have tried to go to India and have all sorts of visa issues and other travel issues. Um, SRX, the Superstar Racing Experience, and iRacing announced a new partnership. They include the scan of the SRX car, and uh, they're going to create an SRX series with the car at short tracks coming in 2024. So that'll be fun. Our friends over at SRX. Uh, and I want to end today's show by uh, some stuff that came out earlier today in the TV ratings world. Uh, just a little bit of ratings top up for you. ESPN got a 0.65 rating and 1.182 million viewers for Sunday's uh, F1 race at Singapore, uh, topping last year's edition of 1.036, and more than double the 2019 edition of 588,000, but they are down 1% in viewership for the season average versus last year. Meanwhile, the NASCAR Cup Series at Bristol Motor Speedway for the Bristol Night Race got a 0.89, 1.562 million viewers for Saturday's Bristol Night Race, down from a 1.07 and 1.776 million viewers on USA. Um, that's close. That might be the closest these two series have come in a long, long time in terms of just overall viewers. That's really tough. I, those are tough numbers for NASCAR, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously USA not quite having the distribution of the, you know, NBC, the big house. Um, mm-hmm. for me personally, and I've heard this before, you know, from, from industry insiders, Saturday night races, as much as we love them, especially as, you know, we love them as, like, core NASCAR fans. I mean, as a kid, that Saturday night race and was, best was, thing ever. was the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah, um, Special paint schemes under the lights, Bristol. I mean, gosh, the memories, mm-hmm. you know, growing up watching Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace on Saturday night races, whether it was at Charlotte or Bristol or wherever, Richmond, um, those were special. Uh, but... Where I'm at in my life, too, is a personally as an adult who's not in these races and watch the races, um, I'm asleep on Saturday night. <laughs> I'm not watching Saturday night races. I don't, yeah. 
I can see, and I like where I was saying earlier, I've heard from industry that, that you know, the, the ratings are tough for Saturday night races. This is why Richmond went to Sunday afternoon race um, for a while. And yeah. as a racer, we didn't like that. It was like, oh, man, Richmond under the lights at night, Saturday nights. You know, like, why, why don't you do that? Well, the ratings are better on Sunday afternoons. And, you know, as a race viewer myself, I can see why. It's a lot easier for me to watch a race on a Sunday afternoon than it is a Saturday night. I'm going to – I understand all that, and I do know Saturday nights are tough for the TV world. But I'm also going to uh, say that it's the Bristol damn night race. (laughs) This is, like, one of the biggest motorsport events in America each year. And – I, I think a couple things hurt it this year. One, the weather. They moved it up an hour. So just remember that. It was an hour earlier. When I turned on the race, I was expecting pre-race. I wasn't there. I had gone home to Connecticut, got the weekend off on the TV side. And I wasn't paying attention to Twitter. And I turned on at 6.30 for the race. And thinking it was going to be like, you know, 45 minutes of pre-race or half hour ever. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we're starting the engines. Let's get <laughs> And I was like, what? Yep. Um, so I don't think that helps. And, you know, I just, there's days, I mean, I love Bristol and I love racing Bristol, but I won't, I'm just going to be very honest right here. There is many a time that I'm sitting there, I'm racing it, I'm watching it. And I think, why can't we just put the old Bristol there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what? They like tried, we're, man. we're doing PJ one and all this stuff and they I'm like, tried. rip it up, just rip it up and just do the exact old one. You know what I mean? At some point. Because it's... They've tried. They've tried with good tracking with what they have, but maybe they do got to rip it up. You know, one thing that you know about old Bristol is I I think that when they repaved new Bristol, I think they cleaned up the shape of the corners. Yes, they did. The old one had those humps. It doesn't have the humps anymore and the, like, the asymmetry Mm -hmm. in the corner. Like, if you watch an old Bristol video, you can see the corners don't even have a straight line. Like, her, the curve is not a, yep. even a perfect radius. It's it's it looks like a kindergartner drew drew a half circle. Um, I just wonder if someone no else offense can. to kindergartners. I hope Daphne, my daughter, is not listening. She draws perfect circles, but that's true. Uh, I hope. Here's my thing. I wonder if they have a scan out there because someone asked me today. I did a podcast. I said, if you could build any track in the world, what would it be and what would it be? And I said, a replica of the old Bristol as a temporary <laughs> track in Fidei downtown Manhattan <laughs> on a weekend. Asphalt, not concrete. Asphalt, not concrete. Uh, yep, that's what I'd build. And yep, that's how it would work. And that's my perfect world. So I think that you could, I would be, I mean, it's not my money and it's a huge risk and a lot of construction, but I would be supportive of digging up Bristol and just asphalting it. Keep the banking, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to do on the banking. Nah. No, no, just no. asphalt it. I think no. asphalt. I want to make, yeah. No, you stop right there. Asphalt's fine, but I want the exact. I want someone has it scanned. There's old video games. Get me the old with the humps and everything. However, that one started. Build that one. Do you want to do asphalt? Sure. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, Marcus, we can solve. Do it. Listen to us. Do the thing. <laughs> Here at the Money Lab, we don't do anything. We don't accomplish anything. We just yep. talk about <laughs> Thanks for listening. Check out themoneylab.com. That's the show. See ya. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Money Lab. Please subscribe and review us on your platform of choice. And be sure to join our newsletter for the best five minutes in motorsports delivered directly to your email inbox every Tuesday and Thursday. And you know what? We love bringing you all this content for free. So what do we ask for? Simply for you to subscribe and to let us know every single thing we are doing wrong. If you want to leave us those sorts of opinions, please go over to YouTube, subscribe there, and leave us comments in the comment sections below the videos. We might just respond. We might put you on the next podcast. Most of all, we just love the feedback, even when it's really mean. Thank you for listening.